This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I just want to take a minute to let you know if you like This Is Monsters, you might like my other show, Somewhere Sinister. Each season, we go to a different place and tell sinister stories from that area. You can check it out by going to this link here. Thanks so much, and on to the story. On the morning of September 25th, 1989, Ellen Boehm made a series of calls. She had used the payphone at a nearby gas station to do so. Her home phone had been shut off for a while now due to lack of payment. It was around 8.15 a.m. when she made the first call. After reaching her supervisor at work, Elaine Herman, Ellen informed her that she wouldn't be coming in that day. Her four-year-old, Stephen, had stopped breathing, and they were on their way to the hospital that very second. It was a familiar nightmare for the single mother. She'd just lost her youngest son ten months earlier after he suddenly stopped breathing and turned blue. In the absence of any other explanation for the death of such a lively two-year-old, the doctors decided that SIDS was the most likely culprit. Now it appeared as though Stephen was afflicted with the same ailment that claimed his brother. That was Ellen's story, anyway. Understandably horrified by the news, Elaine offered her sympathies and asked Ellen to keep her posted on Stephen's condition. Three hours later, Ellen was on the phone again. The hospital couldn't find anything wrong with her son, she said, so they discharged him and sent him home, only for him to stop breathing again in the car. She was now rushing him back to the emergency room. Unsure of what to make of this new development, Elaine did her best to comfort the panicked mother. She had no way of knowing that Stephen was, in fact, alive and well, waiting patiently in the car while Ellen was on the phone. Unbeknownst to Elaine, Stephen hadn't even stepped foot in a hospital that day. But all that was going to change in just a few short hours. This is Monsters. Ellen K. Booker was born to Catherine and John in 1960. Before her parents met, John had seven children with his first wife, but he was a heavy drinker with a notoriously wandering eye. He ultimately abandoned the family, moved out of state, and married Catherine within a year. Ellen came soon afterward, and she would be the couple's only child together. In 1977, John Booker learned that his first wife died of a heart attack. The news came as a shock, and he was deeply bereaved. Although Ellen and Catherine weren't sure what to make of his grief, they tried to be as supportive as possible. 
when he told them that he wanted to travel back to his home state of Mississippi to attend her funeral, they agreed that it was important for him to be there for his other children. A few months later, John had a change of heart. He left Ellen and Catherine behind in Missouri to reconcile with what was left of his original family. His daughter was a junior in high school at the time. John, now 64 years old and in extremely poor health, wouldn't stay in Mississippi for long. After about a year, he returned to St. Louis, where he would be placed in a nursing home. He remained there until his death several months later in June of 1979. Meanwhile, young Ellen found herself falling for a much older man. The fact that he was already married didn't matter much to her. To Ellen, Paul Boehm was the man of her dreams, but eventually she would come to realize how much her future husband resembled her father, and not just in age. They met during Ellen's senior year. Paul was a Vietnam veteran and worked as a bus driver. His relationship with his current wife was on the rocks, and it didn't take long for him to decide that he much preferred the affections of the young blonde girl he met on his bus route. Paul wanted to marry her the day she finished school, but Ellen wanted to wait. As a newly-fledged adult, she wasn't quite ready to settle down. But on June 7, 1980, three days before she turned 20, the happy couple finally tied the knot. Unfortunately, that happiness was destined to wane. Ellen found the perfect little starter home, the upper-floor apartment of a roomy house in St. Louis. The owner of the home, an elderly woman, lived in the other apartment downstairs. After a year, their landlord fell ill and decided to sell the property. She asked the Bohms if they would be willing to purchase the home, and they jumped at the opportunity. Once the former owner left, they wasted no time in moving all of their things downstairs to the lower level with the intent of renting out the upper floor, just as their landlord had. Early in the marriage, Paul accompanied Ellen to indulge in her favorite pastime, professional wrestling. She was a huge fan and attended every match she possibly could, and when she wasn't cheering on her favorite wrestlers in person, she was glued to the television or raving about the most recent show. Even though Paul didn't find wrestling to be nearly as thrilling as his new wife did, he supposed it was as good a reason as any to get out of the house and enjoy some time with her, and for a while that was enough. They bought season tickets to the local matches and managed to score some pretty good seats, much to the new bride's delight. After a couple of years, though, Paul wanted to come along less and less. He found the whole spectacle kind of ridiculous, and he didn't really seem to understand what Ellen found so interesting about a bunch of greasy, barely-clad muscleheads rolling around and grappling with each other in front of thousands of people. Luckily, Ellen would soon find the perfect person to share her passion with. Like the Boehms, Deanne Smith and her new husband had purchased season tickets and their seats were located directly in front of Ellen and Paul. Deanne and Ellen were the definition of kindred spirits. They were both wrestling superfans who cheered their favorites on while their disinterested husbands looked on in bemusement, but they had a lot of other things in common as well. For instance, they had similar battles with their weight, and they both worked the same kind of secretarial jobs. Both had recently married, and both would eventually get divorced from their husbands. Given how alike they were, the fact that they quickly became the best of friends should come as no surprise. In no time at all, they went from casual conversations at wrestling events to talking on the phone almost every night after work. But as their friendship grew closer and closer, their relationship with their spouses became more and more distant. Coming to the shows had started as a couple's date night, but once Deanne divorced her husband and Paul stopped tagging along, it ended up becoming girls' night instead. 
and coming to the matches wasn't the only thing Paul Boehm stopped doing around this time. He also stopped coming straight home after work, which was less than ideal, considering the fact that Ellen had her hands full caring for their daughter, who would have been a toddler at the time. It was slowly becoming clear that he much preferred the atmosphere and company of the local bars over his family. Despite all the trouble in paradise, the Boehms welcomed their second child, a boy, on September 22, 1985. Then, almost immediately afterward, Ellen fell pregnant with baby number three. After the birth of their final child, another boy, Paul and Ellen decided that it made sense for her to leave her job as a secretary in favor of becoming a stay-at-home mom. Their marriage continued to decline. Ellen suspected that her husband was being unfaithful and sought comfort in the over-the-top theatrics of the wrestling world and in her new friend. Ellen and Deanne had some wonderful times together. On Memorial Day weekend in 1986, they pooled their money together for a long road trip and followed the wrestlers on their tour through nearby states. They stopped to watch every performance along the way from St. Louis to Little Rock. Ellen didn't let hundreds of miles, long hours of driving, or the fact that she was seven months pregnant get in the way. She was a real fan, after all. She was more than willing to do whatever it took to get her fill of all the action. Deanne was just as big a fan, but with one key exception. She knew the difference between fantasy and reality. Helen, however, not so much. They would travel with the wrestlers as far as their budgets and schedules would allow, which was frequent enough for some of the referees, managers, and performers to begin recognizing them. Ellen's favorite wrestler was Ted DiBiase, also known as the Million Dollar Man. She'd been following his career for the better part of six years, and wrote letter after letter to him proclaiming her undying love, and her endless desire for him. She often sent her letters to the arena he was scheduled to be at next, hoping he might read them before the show and know that she would be there watching. Maybe it would give him a little boost before the match and make his day. According to Deanne, Ellen often gave her copies of these letters to read. Most of the time, though, Deanne would simply shove these letters in a drawer somewhere and forget about them. The love notes could sometimes be somewhat suggestive in nature, and even though the women shared a lot with each other, Deanne didn't really have much desire to read her best friend's spank bank material. At some point, Deanne started realizing that Ellen's fan letters were a tad obsessive. Unlike Deanne, who saw the wrestling events as entertainment similar to, say, a concert, Ellen was completely drawn in. For her, wrestling wasn't just entertainment, it was life itself. Not that Deanne minded too much. As far as she was concerned, this was the only fun Ellen really got to have, and she didn't want to ruin that for her. So what if she got a little overzealous sometimes? So what if she wrote a bunch of flirty letters to a bunch of dudes that probably wouldn't even open them? So what if she crushed on her favorite wrestlers like a lovesick schoolgirl? It wasn't like it was hurting anybody, and besides, a girl can dream, right? Generally, writing such a letter to another man as a married woman with two small children and another one on the way seems pretty shady, but Paul wasn't exactly innocent himself. In August of 1984, he met yet another young girl on his bus route. Her name was Terry, and she would eventually become his third wife. After he broke things off with Ellen, of course. A week after her Memorial Day marathon, Paul informed his heavily pregnant wife that he needed to move to Texas for a while. It wasn't his choice, he said, but a necessity. 
He had been exposed to Agent Orange while in Vietnam and had suffered from intermittent rashes ever since. He feared that the rash was perhaps a sign of something more serious, and if he had any hope of improving his condition, the only option was to spend a couple of weeks at the local veterans hospital until he could be transferred to the one in Texas. The entire treatment was expected to take at least a few months, meaning he would have to quit his job and temporarily relocate. It was June 6, 1986, and instead of celebrating her 6th anniversary with her husband, she was left to wonder how she could possibly care for their children in his absence. She didn't doubt his story, though. Not at first, anyway. Deanne was considerably less convinced. Having seen her former husband through a triple bypass, she found it strange that Helen hadn't met with Paul's doctors or even spoken to them over the phone. She found it hard to believe that the doctors wouldn't include a man's spouse in conversations about his care, especially if he required months of treatment from an out-of-state hospital. At her best friend's suggestion, Ellen waited about a week and then drove down to the St. Louis branch of the Veterans Hospital, where Paul claimed he would be undergoing treatment for several weeks before making his way to Texas. She looked all over but couldn't find his car, and that could only mean one thing. He wasn't there. Shortly afterward, Ellen received further confirmation that she had been lied to and abandoned when a man she once worked with called to inform her that Paul was having an affair with his wife. Apparently, this relationship was somewhat short-lived. He had already skipped town with someone else who would later turn out to be Terry, the captivating blonde he'd met during his time as a bus driver. Ellen's third and final child was born on July 25, 1986. Paul came to the hospital to meet his newborn son, but he didn't stick around long. In about two weeks, he and his new future bride would be heading for a new life in Kansas. Even though he didn't know it yet, this was both the first and the last time that Paul would ever see his youngest son. By Thanksgiving Day of 1988, life as a single mother of three had already taken a toll. Without her husband's income, Ellen was forced to declare bankruptcy and ultimately lost the house. She'd managed to find herself a job in a more affordable apartment, but still struggled financially. Paul was supposed to pay child support, but never did, leaving her to fend for herself. She was behind on most of her utility bills to the point where the phone company had disconnected her service and was now garnishing her wages. Eventually, she got a second job delivering pizzas four nights a week. It made paying the rent a little easier, but it also meant she was working over 60 hours a week, in addition to dealing with the day-to-day -day responsibilities of raising a family of small children by herself. Luckily, Ellen's mother was always willing to watch the children whenever she needed, including when she planned a road trip with Deanne. Wrestling was really the one thing she had to look forward to these days, and Catherine was happy to take the kids for a few nights so she could let off some steam every now and then. That Thanksgiving, she ordered a heat-and-serve meal from the local grocery store and invited her mother over for dinner. Afterward, she drove her mother back to her house and then took the kids to see all the Christmas decorations around town. David, the youngest of the three, ended up falling asleep in the car on the way home. His mother hoped she'd be able to carry him to the apartment and put him to bed before he woke up, but he was already starting to stir by the time they pulled into the parking lot. As soon as they walked through the front door, however, little David was revitalized by the bane of every parent's existence, his second wind. While his siblings went off to bed without a fuss, two-year-old David just wasn't having it. 
Being the energetic handful that he was, this was a pretty common thing. Ellen tried to tuck him in a couple of times, but much to her dismay, he just wouldn't stay in bed. Eventually, she gave up and let him watch TV with her while she tackled some ironing. A short while later, Ellen decided to call up an old friend to see how her own Thanksgiving celebration had gone. They chatted for a while, mostly small talk about what they had for dinner and how the children were doing. She made a point to mention that David hadn't been feeling too well. He was fighting off a cold or something, she thought, or maybe the pre-cooked turkey that they had that night made him a little sick. What her friend didn't know, of course, was that the little boy had been perfectly fine 20 minutes ago, aside from a case of the sniffles. Now he was lying motionless on the floor in front of his mother, with his lips turning blue. Throughout the entire 15-minute conversation, Ellen was staring down at her son, watching the color drain out of his face as she casually talked about the events of the day. She shot the shit with her friend for a little while longer before choosing the perfect moment to interrupt. Something's wrong with David. I have to let you go. Ellen hung up almost before the woman on the other line could even say goodbye, but she didn't think much of it. What mother hasn't cut a phone call short in order to keep their toddler from painting the bathroom with the contents of their diaper or winning a Darwin Award? After calling for an ambulance, Ellen woke her other children and said that their brother had stopped breathing and needed to go to the hospital. Then she told them to get dressed while she went to find help. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When the paramedics arrived at 4720 South Broadway, apartment 501, nobody came to the door. After pounding on the door for much longer than you'd expect when being summoned to save someone's child, Ellen's daughter finally answered and let them in. The poor girl was clearly terrified, and her mother was nowhere to be found. When asked where she was, the little girl, who we'll call Sarah out of respect for her privacy, simply told them that her mother had gone downstairs to get help. David was still laying on the floor. He was in full cardiac arrest. As one of the first responders began mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, the other worked to get him prepped for the ride to the hospital as quickly as he could. It was a process that took the better part of ten minutes. Ellen appeared just as they were about to get David loaded up into the ambulance. When asked what had happened to her son, she didn't have much information to give them, aside from the fact that he'd been sick recently. To the paramedics, Ellen seemed unusually chill about the fact that her son's heart had stopped beating out of nowhere. Everyone responds to stressful situations differently, of course, but mothers with not-breathing babies aren't typically known for being the strong, silent type when watching their children get wheeled outside on a stretcher. They asked if she wanted to ride to the hospital with them, but Ellen declined. She said she had to get someone to watch her other children first, and she would be on her way there as soon as she could. When she arrived at the hospital a while later, the doctors were still scrambling to save her son. He wasn't breathing on his own and required the use of a ventilator to stay alive. On top of that, he also had a fever of 101 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius, so the nurses surrounded his body with ice packs to cool him down. But no matter how hard they tried, the boy remained unresponsive. The next morning, David was moved to the intensive care unit. 
Meanwhile, his mother called Deanne, who told her that she would come to the hospital as soon as she got off work. Deanne didn't really grasp the severity of the situation until Ellen took her back to see the boy. They stayed at his bedside for a while, and then Ellen told her that she was going to take a nap in the waiting room. Given the circumstances, Deanne didn't think much of it. After staying up all night and day in the hospital with her gravely ill child, a little shut-eye would probably do her good. She told Ellen that she would stay with David and wake her up if there was any change in his condition. Before she left, though, Deanne asked if Ellen had told her mother yet, and much to her surprise, Ellen said that she hadn't. It was weird, sure, but people can do all sorts of weird things when they're scared, sleep-deprived, and in shock, right? Deanne spent the next few hours sitting by David and wondering how Ellen had the strength to get through the night. The pain of seeing him like this was almost unbearable. It must have been a thousand times worse for his mother. Just before 11.30pm, a doctor asked her to step outside for a while so they could run some tests to check for brain activity. Deanne obliged, making her way to the waiting room, where Ellen was still asleep. Roughly an hour later, the doctor came in with the test results. Deanne woke her friend up and told her what they found, or rather, what they didn't find. David was brain dead. Despite doing everything they could to save him, the scan showed no brain activity whatsoever. The doctor told them to go home for the night and promised to call if anything changed, so Deanne took Ellen back to her place. On the way there, Deanne made a comment about how exhausted Ellen must be after a long, sleepless night in the hospital. Ellen then informed her that she had actually gone home that night because she wanted to get a good night's sleep. Deanne was completely blindsided. She thought Ellen had been at David's bedside all this time. It was hard to imagine a mother sleeping peacefully in her own bed while her two-year-old was alone in the hospital fighting for his life. When they returned the following morning, the nurse told them that a second brain scan showed no changes. There was no hope for him now. He would never wake up, and the only thing keeping him alive was the respirator. Because of that, the doctor suggested it might be time to take him off life support and let him go. Deanne was devastated, but Ellen was eerily composed, even as she told the doctor to turn off the machines. When asked what could have killed him, the doctor said they hadn't been able to find anything, but they believed he probably succumbed to SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. That didn't really sound right to Deanne, though. David wasn't an infant, after all. He was a rambunctious two-year-old in perfect health. He had long passed the age where the chances of crib death were the highest. As the doctor left to turn off David's ventilator, Ellen called her mother. She asked her to put Sarah on the phone and began to tell her what happened, but Deanne immediately interrupted. No seven-year-old should ever be informed of their brother's death over the phone. That was a conversation you had to have face-to-face. -face. Ellen was displaying a kind of callousness that Deanne had never seen in her before, and she had no idea what to make of it, especially when she casually asked the doctors if they wanted any of his organs for science. Unfortunately, they explained that he wouldn't be a good candidate for organ donation due to his fever. Throughout the entire ordeal, Ellen hadn't cried once, even as Deanne was racked with sobs. Was it possible to be in such a state of shock that you turned into an emotionless void just like her? David Brian Boehm was pronounced dead at 3.40pm on November 26, 1988. A few days later, the St. Louis medical examiner, a man by the name of Dr. Michael Graham, performed the little boy's autopsy. Meanwhile, Ellen took the day off to take care of David's funeral arrangements. 
While she was out and about, she stopped by a payphone and called Deanne at work to tell her that she was going to pick up tickets for the next wrestling event when she was done at the funeral home. It was the first day they were on sale, which meant they would have to act quickly if they wanted to get good seats. Deanne offered to pick them up. Ellen had enough on her plate already without worrying about wrestling tickets, but her friend refused. She said she was already out running errands anyway, so it wasn't much of an inconvenience. Besides, she already knew where they were going to sit. For most parents, wrestling would be the last thing on their minds after the death of their child. But then again, Ellen wasn't most parents. On November 28th, Paul and Terry Boehm received a phone call from Terry's mother, who informed them of David's death. Paul contacted his ex-wife immediately. After explaining what had happened to their son, Ellen told him she didn't have enough money to bury him. Since Paul was a veteran, she knew he could probably have David buried there at little or no cost, but for some reason, she didn't want him there. She wanted to bury him at Trinity Cemetery instead, in the section reserved for very young children. Paul didn't like that idea at all, but there wasn't much he could do about it. He was all the way out in Arizona, and he was just about as broke as she was, so he wouldn't have even been able to travel back to St. Louis for the funeral. After a heated argument that lasted the better part of three hours, Ellen ultimately got her way. David was put to rest in Trinity Cemetery, right next to all the other children that were taken from their parents too soon. At the funeral, Ellen showed very little emotion. Some people thought her stoicism was her way of staying strong for her other children, but the people that knew her best found it a little strange. It was hard for them to imagine how a mother could look at her baby lying in a coffin and not break down. After David's burial, Ellen refused to pay the $2,348 bill from the funeral home, despite never mentioning any complaints about her son's service. She also hadn't paid for a headstone, despite Deanne reminding her several times in the weeks that followed. No matter how many times she brought it up, Ellen kept stalling, even though she had the money for it, thanks to a $5,000 life insurance policy that she had through her job. On top of that, her friends and co-workers had pitched in to raise around $1,000 for the grieving mother. The week after the fight with Ellen, Terry Boehm had an appointment with her obstetrician. While she was there, she asked the doctor how common crib death was for two-year-olds. The doctor told her it was damn near impossible. Despite getting confirmation from a medical professional that David's death certainly seemed suspicious, there wasn't much they could do about it from hundreds of miles away. With one kid gone and her bank account close to $6,000 richer, Ellen's financial struggles were temporarily relieved. It was easy money, and she was beginning to wonder if there was ways to make even more. So what if she had to kill a kid or two to get it? David's death had kicked off a chain reaction, and now both of his siblings were in grave danger. They just didn't know it yet. By January of the next year, Ellen Boehm was broke again. She'd used the life insurance money to take her surviving children to Disney World, and whatever was left went to fund a wrestling trip with her best friend. She did have another $10,000 life insurance policy on each of her children through a company called John Hancock Life Insurance, but when she called and tried to cash David's policy in, she was informed that it had been cancelled due to non-payment. She'd gotten too far behind on the premiums on all three accounts, and now she wouldn't be able to collect on any of them. But that was okay, because she was hatching a backup plan. Ellen was back to working two jobs. She borrowed money from Deanne on occasion, and always paid her back on payday. Her best friend was sympathetic to the single mother's plight. They both knew that there was little hope of getting child support from Ellen's ex-husband, and Deanne respected the fact that she was a hard worker. 
On the outside, it looked like Ellen was doing the best she could with the hand that she had been dealt, but on the inside, certain gears were beginning to turn in her head. By the beginning of 1989, the two women had drifted apart somewhat, but remained close. Deanne had moved to Illinois, but they still talked on the phone almost every day, and they often grabbed lunch together. Often during their meetings, Ellen would point out some random guy and give this detailed story about how they were madly in love and were going to run away together. Deanne knew most of it was bullshit. She'd spent enough time with Ellen to know that she was prone to exaggerating and lies of omission. There wasn't exactly a line of suitors bearing down on her front door, although Ellen seemed to want people to believe otherwise. But Deanne knew the truth. The story she overheard her friend telling people about her wild flings with guys in the wrestling circuit almost always had some kernel of truth to them. They might have shared a polite conversation with a wrestler after a match, or they might have run into a manager for some big name in the industry at a bar, but Ellen would twist the story after the fact, spice it up with some juicy details, and turn the story into something it wasn't. Something that would make her seem desirable to the men she idolized, even though they never returned her overt advances. Once, while they were having lunch together, Ellen pointed to a man a few tables over and told Deanne that his name was Jeff Stark. He was a staff consultant at the company she worked for, and he'd recently turned down her invitation to go out for drinks together. But to hear Ellen tell it, they were planning a weekend trip. She described their plans in detail, how they would get two rooms, one for them and one for Ellen's kids, and how they would register one of the rooms under each of their names. She even mentioned that they would be taking his car and leaving hers in St. Louis. But by this point, Deanne had already checked out. All you had to do was look at the guy she was talking about to know Ellen was full of shit. Handsome dudes in their 20s aren't typically the type to fall for an unattractive woman with two kids and a lot of emotional baggage. They generally had much better options available to them in the dating scene. That weekend, Deanna did some fact-checking. While Ellen was supposedly frolicking with her new man in Cleveland, Deanne took a drive to St. Louis to see if Ellen's car was still parked in its usual spot. If she was really at SeaWorld like she said she was going to be, it should have been sitting there. Except it wasn't. The car was gone, presumably because Ellen was out running her typical errands as opposed to getting splashed by Shamu in Cleveland. When Deanne got back home, her suspicions were further confirmed after a quick call to the hotel Ellen claimed they would be staying at during the mini-vacation. There was no record of an Ellen Boehm, or of a Jeff Stark for that matter. Deanne wasn't particularly shocked by this revelation. She always kind of knew that Ellen was a liar. After all the time they'd spent together and all the stories she'd heard her revise after the fact, it was a little hard not to notice. But despite how ridiculous her stories could sound to someone who knew the truth firsthand, Deanne never brought it up or called her out. She figured it was probably obvious to everyone else that her stories were far-fetched as well. Like her letters full of innuendo to men who never returned her affection, this was merely one of her friend's quirks. Of course, she wanted her life to seem more exciting than it really was. It wasn't like Ellen had much going for her these days. She hadn't had a date since Paul, and now her youngest son was dead. She was overworked and overwhelmed, and she was flat broke to boot. Her stories were crafted to impress acquaintances, and Deanne ultimately decided to let her have that, for better or for worse. What disturbed her more than Ellen's dishonest streak was her uncanny ability to go about her daily life as if she hadn't lost a child recently. Deanne didn't have children of her own, but she couldn't imagine how a mother could seem so okay after burying their toddler. In April of 1989, a headline-grabbing case caught Ellen's attention. 
A couple from Alton, Illinois, named Robert and Paula Sims, claimed that a masked man had jumped Paula as she was taking out the trash, forced her back into the house, and knocked her unconscious before stealing their six-week-old daughter Heather from her bassinet. But it wasn't so much the fact that someone was able to steal a baby right out of her own house that had everyone talking. It was the fact that it had actually happened before, to this very same couple. A few years before, in June of 1986, they'd lived in Brighton, Illinois. Just like now, Paula had called the police in a panic, claiming that a masked gunman had entered her home and stolen her daughter, Lorelai Marie, who was only 13 days old. A week later, the remains of a newborn baby were found in a wooded area near the Sims' house. An autopsy proved inconclusive. Lorelai Marie's cause of death was listed as undetermined. The Sims eventually moved to Alton for a fresh start, only to apparently have the same oddly specific nightmare scenario play out for a second time. Heather Lee Sims was found on May 3, 1989. She'd been wrapped in a black trash bag and stuffed into a barrel. Paula was charged with her murder soon after. During the autopsy, small cuts were discovered on the inside of her upper lip which suggested that someone was pressing against her face with enough force to cause trauma to the soft tissue. In other words, the infant had been smothered to death. So when Ellen brought up the case to a co-worker, the other woman was understandably unsettled. Not just because it was the topic of murdered children, or even because Ellen sounded so confident and matter-of-fact when she told her co-worker that Paula Sims did it for the insurance money. No, what really bothered the co-worker was the fact that she'd overheard Ellen making phone calls to quite a few insurance companies herself. By July of that year, Ellen was ready to begin the preparations for her next move. She started by calling around to different life insurance companies, gathering information about the different policies available for her remaining two children. She would end up purchasing policies from four different companies for both kids, adding up to a grand total of $100,000 in coverage for each child. She sent in the final application to the Gerber Insurance Company on August 29th, and a week later, her daughter almost died. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Ellen's story of the incident went like this. She was in the kitchen while her daughter Sarah had a bath upstairs. She'd just finished helping her into the tub and could hear her daughter playing with her dolls as she put away some groceries. Suddenly, her daughter began screaming. Ellen raced into the bedroom to find Sarah laying under the water. There was a hair dryer in the tub with her, and to Ellen's horror, it was plugged in, charging the tub and her child's body with 110 volts of electricity. Somehow, Sarah managed to turn off the hair dryer and throw it out of the tub. She climbed out to see her mother standing there, frantically asking what had happened. Awakened by the commotion, Stephen appeared in the doorway. Ellen turned to ask him what happened, as if he hadn't just rolled out of bed and walked into the room that very second. Obviously, the child didn't have an answer, and Ellen knew damn well how that hairdryer ended up in the tub with her eight-year-old daughter. 
she instructed her children to get themselves dressed while she ran to get help. One of their neighbors down the hall was a medical student. She pounded on the door, but he wasn't home. Meanwhile, the kids were in full panic mode, shrieking and crying alone in their apartment. Ellen eventually came back to finish dressing them. They began to cry even louder as they prepared to leave the building, and a witness would later describe hearing Ellen scream back at her terrified children. Concerned, the witness called the police, and then went down to the lobby to wait for them, or to intercept the kids and their angry mother. The officer got to the apartment building just in time to see Ellen and her screaming children as they were headed out the front door. Sarah was arguing adamantly about something, but it was impossible to decipher what exactly she was upset about. What the officer didn't realize was that mother and daughter were arguing over Ellen's narrative. She told Sarah to tell the doctors or anyone else who asked that Stephen had been the one to toss the hairdryer into the bathtub. She claimed that she had had a talk with Stephen, and he admitted that he had been trying to help her dry her Barbie doll's hair, but the hairdryer had slipped out of his hand. But Sarah had been the one to tuck Stephen in that night, and he was sound asleep by the time she finished reading him his bedtime story. He wasn't in the bathroom with her at any point. She knew that for a fact. Even though she knew better, Sarah relented by the time they got to the hospital. She ended up going with her mother's story because there wasn't much else she really could do. How was an eight-year-old supposed to confront the fact that their mother just tried to kill them? The doctors took the story at face value. It sounded plausible, so they didn't press the issue. They simply checked Sarah over, declared her physically healthy, and cleared her to go home, with instructions for Ellen to keep an eye on her. So ultimately, her attempt on her daughter's life failed. It was a close call, but Sarah was still alive. Sadly, Stephen wouldn't be as lucky. Nine days later, on Friday, February 22nd, Ellen threw Stephen a party for his fourth birthday. Sarah didn't appear to have any lasting effects from her ordeal with the hairdryer, and Ellen made a show of keeping close watch over her just in case. The very next day, Stephen was due for a checkup. His doctor found him healthy and in good spirits, even though his records showed he was overdue for his next round of vaccinations. Although this was easily corrected during the appointment, it did strike the doctor as odd. In his experience, parents that had recently lost children were usually sticklers about getting the surviving siblings in for their checkups and immunizations right when the time came due. Nevertheless, the kid seemed fine. Ellen was warned he may start running a mild fever in the next day or two, but it would be nothing to worry about. It was merely his body's initial response to the vaccines. Except poor Stephen got quite a bit sicker than that. According to Ellen, they stopped and had tacos for lunch once they left the doctor's office, but Stephen wasn't feeling well by the time they got back home. He started vomiting just before dinner. Oddly enough, though, Ellen claimed his temperature stayed in the normal range the whole time, even as he continued to vomit through the night. He finally started improving by the next morning, although he spent much of the day sleeping. Ellen decided to keep him on a liquid diet, which seemed to help somewhat. On Monday, after putting Sarah on the school bus, Ellen dropped by her mother's house to let her know that she would be staying home with Stephen that day. Catherine agreed that it was probably for the best. Poor kid just needed a little more time to get over the shots he'd been given over the weekend. One more day snuggled up with his mother would probably do him a world of good. After a short visit, Ellen drove off, but she didn't head home just yet. She stopped at a nearby gas station to use the payphone instead. It had been months since her landline at home had been disconnected due to non-payment, and she needed to call the office to let them know she wasn't coming in. Elaine Herman, Ellen's supervisor, was the one to answer the phone. 
Ellen frantically told her that her son had stopped breathing, just like his brother. They were on their way to the hospital at that very moment, but she had to call in to let everyone know first. Stephen was perfectly fine, aside from feeling a little under the weather. He was sitting patiently in his mother's car, waiting for her to return from the phone booth. Overcome with the shock of this newest tragedy, Elaine offered her sympathies and asked that Ellen keep everyone at the office updated on his condition. Then, Ellen hung up the phone, calmly walked back to the car, and got in. After running a few errands, Stephen asked to go to Taco Bell. Ellen resisted at first, but eventually gave in. While all of Ellen's co-workers believed that her son was being rushed to the emergency room after he stopped breathing, Stephen was actually having his last meal. It was one of his favorites, pintos and cheese. When they finished eating and were headed back home, something caught Stephen's attention. Even at four years old, he could recognize the funeral home that handled his little brother's services when they drove past it. He pointed it out to his mother and told her that was where David had been. Stephen's eyes filled up with tears. He told her how much he missed his little brother and asked if they could go see him. Helen, now crying herself if you believe the story she later told, eventually pulled into the cemetery and led her son to David's grave. She still hadn't gotten a headstone, and all that identified her child's final resting place after ten months was a small plastic marker. She still hadn't paid the funeral home, either. Stephen said he wished he was with his little brother. Ellen held him as they both sobbed by her youngest son's grave, as if a shred of remorse or grief actually existed in her. As heart-wrenching as it is to imagine the scene of a mother and her young son weeping over the place where his even younger brother was buried, there's a singular fact to keep in the back of your head at all times. Not long after this moment, Stephen Boehm would be in a grave just like it. By the time Ellen got to another payphone, around three hours had passed since the first call to the office. When she called back a second time, her made-up emergency took a bizarre turn. She said that when they got to the hospital, the doctors couldn't find anything with Stephen at all, so they sent him home. But now they were headed back, because they hadn't even made it to the front door before he stopped breathing again and started turning blue. Or so she said. Elaine, who had spent the last few hours worrying with her co-workers, wasn't sure what to make of this new development. The only thing she could think to ask was if Ellen thought he was getting the right care at that particular hospital. Maybe Children's Hospital would be better equipped to care for Stephen. Ellen waved the suggestion off. Cardinal Glennon was the same hospital she'd taken David to when he also stopped breathing, which might have given most parents at least a slight aversion to the place, considering the fact he ultimately died there. But it was closer than children's, and Ellen didn't seem to have any lingering associations of her youngest son's awful tragedy, even though the people closest to her undoubtedly still did. Then again, she supposedly had an unconscious kid in her car, so Elaine supposed it made sense to get help as quickly as possible, even if your confidence in that particular team of doctors was shaky. After they hung up, Elaine once again went to update everyone else at work, while Ellen finally headed home with her son. When they arrived at the apartment, Ellen told Stephen he could watch some TV while she knocked some chores off her never-ending to-do list. He settled on the couch to watch Sesame Street while she started the housework. Every now and then, she could hear his laughter drift in from the living room. A while later, when she poked her head in to check on him, she saw him staring at the TV with eyes that were becoming heavy. He was almost asleep. She inched her way closer, careful not to move too suddenly. She didn't want him to wake up and start struggling. 
Gingerly, she lifted Stephen's head off the couch, removed the cushion he'd been resting on, and pressed the cushion down against his face. Ellen counted somewhere around 30 seconds. Unlike David, who fought against the cushion when she murdered him the same way, Stephen didn't offer much resistance. She wasn't sure if he was alive or dead, but she returned the cushion to its rightful place under his head. His chest was still. Ellen stared down at him for a while, waiting for a twitch or any other signs of life. There weren't any. Ellen waited until she started to see a familiar blue tint to his lips, and then she went to get help. She could have tried Todd Andrew's door. He was the medical student who lived right down the hall, and he had a working phone. But instead, she ran right past his place and headed to the 8th floor, where she hoped to find Pauline Sumakowski. Pauline was her mother's age, and the two somewhat knew each other. But Pauline lived on the 6th floor, not the 8th. Ellen ended up pounding on the wrong door and got no response. Eventually, she circled back to Todd Andrews, who happened to be home at the time. He leapt into action and dialed 911 before running over to Ellen's apartment to tend to the boy himself. He found Stephen lying on his back on the couch and immediately began CPR. When Todd asked what happened, Ellen said very little. She explained that she had left him on the couch while she did some work around the house, and when she checked on him about 15 minutes later, she found him unconscious. The CPR wasn't having any effect, so Todd moved to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Despite his best efforts, Stephen remained unresponsive. He kept going anyway, even though he knew the boy's brain had been deprived of oxygen for far too long already. After a couple of minutes, Ellen left to wait for the paramedics by the elevator. When she led the first responders into the apartment, Todd got out of their way in an instant and let them take over. After determining that the child was in full cardiac arrest, the paramedics wasted little time in getting him prepped for transport. Ellen followed the stretcher to the elevator doors, and then she stopped. She told them that she would be driving herself to the hospital, so they shouldn't wait around for her. This struck them as a little strange, as it had with the paramedics that arrived on the scene to take David to the hospital ten months ago. Mothers rarely turn down the chance to ride with their gravely ill children in the ambulance. But now, just as then, the first responders didn't have much time to ponder the strangeness. They had a child to help. By the time the ambulance pulled away from the parking lot, Ellen had already called her mother to inform her of Stephen's sudden condition and let her know that she would be dropping by to pick her up and take her along to the hospital. As she stood in the lobby, surrounded by a small crowd of curious onlookers, Ellen finally saw Pauline Sumakowski. After quickly filling her in on what had happened, the I-totally-just-found-him-like-that version of it anyway, Pauline offered to pick Sarah up at the bus stop and bring her over to Cardinal Glennon, and it was an offer that Ellen gratefully accepted. Catherine still wasn't quite ready to leave by the time Ellen got to her place, so she gave her some money for a cab and continued on to the hospital. The ambulance arrived at Cardinal Glennon at 1.24pm. Ellen finally got there at a little after 2, and she immediately started making more phone calls. She called the office for a third time to tell Elaine that the doctors were talking about taking Stephen off of life support. Elaine, wanting to be supportive even though this all felt kind of weird, promised to come by the hospital after work. As soon as they ended the call, Ellen was dialing up some of her friends to give them the news, including Deanne. But when she called her best friend at work, the receptionist who answered told her Deanne was out with the flu, but that she would be happy to pass on a message. 
Ellen knew this particular receptionist a little, at least enough to know the woman was aware of her Thanksgiving tragedy. And so Ellen told her about this newest crisis. The very same thing was happening all over again. The receptionist asked Ellen when it happened, and she responded that it happened the night before, a clear discrepancy from the story she'd been telling Elaine all morning. Unfortunately, it would take a little while for anyone to catch on, and by then it was already too late for four-year-old Stephen Boehm. When Elaine arrived at the hospital with another co-worker, it was past four in the afternoon. As they rushed to comfort the distraught mother, Ellen gave another, slightly different story about how she came to realize that her son was no longer breathing. In the original version that she had told paramedics, Stephen merely stopped breathing while he was watching Sesame Street on the couch, and she noticed when she peeked in to check on him. Now, she told the women she worked with that she'd been busy getting herself dressed for work that morning when she noticed that he'd started turning blue. The women observed that Ellen was dressed far too casually to have been getting ready to come into work, but they let it go. For all they knew, she could have changed before she came to the hospital. They didn't realize that Ellen had already decided to stay home with Stephen by the time she would have been getting ready to come into the office. It was a part of the story that didn't fit with the most recent version of bullshit she was attempting to feed somebody, and therefore she conveniently left it out. When the women spoke to Catherine in the waiting room a while later, however, Ellen's story started falling apart. After all, Ellen's mother had actually seen them that morning, and she knew for a fact that she had been planning to stay home with Stephen. Catherine went on to tell them that Stephen was his mother's favorite. He was the best behaved of Ellen's three children, an agreeable and good-natured kid with way more chill than his siblings. Ellen's co-workers listened politely, but something Catherine said sent a chill through them. According to Ellen's own mother, she had actually taken Stephen to the cemetery to visit David earlier that day. But why wouldn't Ellen mention that during one of her multiple calls to the office? If the story she gave Elaine was to be believed, how was it possible for the boy to visit his brother's grave in between apparently intermittent episodes of cardiac arrest? And now, Ellen's co-workers weren't even 100% sure if Stephen was alive or not. Nobody had told them that he'd already been declared dead before they even got there. His mother certainly wasn't acting like she'd already given the doctors permission to turn off his life support. But Stephen was already gone, without them even really being aware of it. Deanne also found it all more than a little strange, mainly because she had gotten the version of the story that Ellen gave the receptionist at her job, that Stephen had stopped breathing during the night. But when she finally got the chance to talk to Ellen personally, the story changed. Now, her friend was telling her that Stephen stopped breathing about 12.30 in the afternoon. Deanne stopped her to ask for clarification. There's a big difference between the middle of the night and the middle of the day, after all. But Ellen steamrolled past her confusion. No, the receptionist must have gotten things mixed up, Ellen told her. It definitely happened in the afternoon. She eventually let the issue go, but Deanne couldn't shake the nagging feeling that something was seriously wrong with the situation. What was the likelihood of both kids dying in the exact same way, and so close together at that? Nobody wants to think that their best friend could be capable of killing their own children in cold blood, but now that the seed of doubt had been planted, it would only grow. Of course, that wasn't where Deanne's mind went right away. At first, she was overcome by the sheer odds of this situation happening in the first place. Two kids under five years old who both stopped breathing out of nowhere and died within ten months of each other? 
It just felt like the kind of thing the natural universe couldn't possibly be cruel enough to allow on its own. The more she thought about it, the more it started to bother her. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life can be hard, and sometimes you need to blow off a little steam. Have you been abducting and murdering prostitutes? Has it become an uncontrollable obsession? Is it affecting your work, your family? Are you ready to stop being a serial killer? Talk to your doctor about Less Kill. Less Kill has been clinically proven to reduce your desire to kill, but we have no idea why. It's probably magic. If you want to wake up in the morning and not spend the entire day thinking about picking up a prostitute and making her pay for how your mother treated you growing up, then Less Kill may be right for you. Less Kill will not keep you from torturing animals, bring the people you've already killed back to life, or keep you from going to prison if you get caught for your previous murders. Side effects of Less Kill include headache, constipation, loss of bladder control, hives, internal bleeding, the ability to taste the color purple, blind allegiance to the almighty ruler, enlarged tongue, hatred of country music, inability to recognize faces, desire to watch reality TV, hallucinations, thoughts of homicide, cannibalism, talking freckles, brain cancer, mild coma, and death. Do not take Less Kill if you're allergic to the number six. Less Kill, for when you're ready to stop killing. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The next morning, Deanne called a friend to talk it through. And the more they talked, the more Deanne realized that she had to get the police involved. As much as she wanted to believe that Ellen couldn't possibly be the kind of monster she seemed to be, there was no ignoring the fact that something just didn't add up. There were far too many inconsistencies. Deanne happened to have another friend that was a police officer, and she called him up the very next day. She chose her words carefully, understandably reluctant to outright accuse a mother of murdering her children without any hard evidence to speak of, especially when they were so close. She didn't want to ruin someone's life based on a gut feeling, but on the other hand... She had to know if she had a legitimate reason for that feeling in the first place. So when she asked Sergeant Daniel Duffy to look into how it was possible for two children in the same family to die in such a rapid succession, seemingly without reason, he was quick to toss the case to his colleagues over in the homicide department. Deanne's tip-off came at just the right time. The medical examiner had already begun Stephen's autopsy, but he wasn't finding anything that pointed to a single cause of death. Dr. Michael Graham had also performed the autopsy on David in the previous case, which had ultimately been ruled a death due to natural causes. He'd seen cases of sudden, unexplained death like this before, but with a second Boehm child now laying on his examination table, it was clear this situation was much different. Just like David, there was no apparent trauma to the boy's body. 
no suggestions of prolonged physical abuse or malnourishment. But given the fact that this was the second, nearly identical death of a young boy within the same family in less than a year, the lack of evidence was suspicious in and of itself. Still, he collected as many samples from the boy's body as he could and sent them off for testing. Dr. Graham decided that he wouldn't feel comfortable ruling on a cause of death until the results of those tests came back. As you probably guessed by now, all the tests came back within a perfectly normal range for a four-year-old child. He was in near-perfect health at the time of his death. But how was that possible? How could someone manage to kill two children and pass it off as they'd simply stopped breathing on their own? The tests ruled out poisoning or any underlying illnesses. Metabolic tests were all normal. No congenital diseases, fatal birth defects, or injuries of any kind. So what could have killed these boys? Drugs were out because they would have shown up in a toxicology screen. Electrocution was possible, but he didn't find any telltale signs of it on either body. Drowning was also possible, but probably unlikely. In those cases, the parents usually went to the trouble to dry the child's hair and put them in fresh, dry clothes and try to hide what really happened. Aside from that, the medical examiner probably would have found some amount of water in their lungs if that was the method of choice. Strangling was also an improbable candidate. He would have seen marks around the neck. As the doctor systematically worked through a process of elimination to uncover what really happened to the Boehm boys, one method in particular began to stand out. Smothering. If someone were to, say, lay on top of a child in such a way to prevent them from being able to breathe, or to press an object over their face until they died, it was possible to do so without causing any obvious signs that the child had been intentionally harmed. As he continued his due diligence, the doctor ultimately came to the conclusion that it would, in fact, be possible for Ellen to kill both children without raising much suspicion, but he wasn't prepared to accuse her just yet. He wanted Detective Joe Burgoon to dig a little deeper first. Dr. Graham filled Detective Burgoon in on the developing case, and it didn't take long for the investigator to agree with the medical examiner. It was all just too convenient to be a coincidence. But even though she'd attracted the suspicions of law enforcement, the case was something of a slow burn. The St. Louis Police Department was a busy place, and the officers that worked there had their hands full on a near-constant basis. However, that did not mean Helen would escape the scales of justice. It just took a while to get there. Roughly a week after Stephen's sudden death, someone called the child abuse hotline to express concerns about Ellen's last living child, Sarah. The anonymous caller knew both boys had died and also had knowledge of Sarah's near-death experience in the bathtub. At that point, neither her co-workers nor the police or even Deanne were aware that the incident with the hairdryer had even happened. But someone knew, and now that Stephen was gone, the unidentified stranger was compelled to do something about it. In early October, a social worker with the St. Louis Division of Family Services came to Sarah Boehm's school to interview the second grader. Although she had vivid memories of the relevant incidents, her retelling of them was a little shaky. This didn't strike the social worker as a red flag, though. Sarah was just a kid, after all, and she'd been through a lot in the past year. She was about as mournful as you'd expect an eight-year-old to be given the extraordinary circumstances she had lived through but didn't appear distressed or frightened. When the little girl was asked what happened on the night the hairdryer ended up in her bathwater, she told Ellen's version of events and said it was her now-deceased little brother's fault. 
He was the one to drop the hairdryer into the tub, and then her mother ran into the bathroom and unplugged it before whisking Sarah off to the hospital. The second grader didn't offer much more information than that, so the social worker wrapped up the interview. But she wasn't done just yet. She was very interested in speaking to Ellen herself. She met with Ellen Boehm the next day and had a similar conversation, with a predictable outcome. She gave the social worker the stories of how she found both her boys after they had already started turning blue. As she relayed the details back, the social worker got the sense that Ellen kept bouncing back and forth between being vague with the more important bits and weirdly specific with stuff that didn't really matter. The name of the store she stopped at for David's cold medicine, for instance. But all she really said about the actual moment she found him was that he'd been sick and was laying on the floor. Then suddenly, he just wasn't breathing. And when it came to Steven, his mother was able to recall that he had exactly three bites of his food at Taco Bell that morning. But when she got to the part where she found him unconscious, once again, she didn't have much more to say other than, quote, he wasn't feeling well. Yet Ellen also made it a point to mention that she and Steven had stopped over at her mother's house that morning, as if it mattered. It was probably a mistake to mention it at all, considering the fact that everyone at her work had a completely different timeline of events. That very same night, Paul Boehm's current wife, Terry, learned of Stephen's death during a phone call with her mother. By that point, ten days had passed since he was declared dead at the hospital, but this was the first time his father was hearing of it. Ellen had never called to tell them. Terry's mother happened to see an article about the incident in the newspaper, and so she had to be the one to give them the news. They immediately suspected foul play. Why else wouldn't you tell a father that his son had died? Paul didn't even know if he'd been buried yet, or where she might have had him interred for that matter. Paul and Terry started making some calls as soon as they could, hoping to gather as much information as possible. Before long, they'd seen enough to know that their suspicions were pretty well-founded. Certainly, there was enough here to warrant a call to both the police department and Child Protective Services. As far as they were concerned, Sarah was in grave danger even now. Meanwhile, back in St. Louis, the other tenants in Ellen's building were talking about taking up a collection for the poor mother, just as they had done after the death of her first son. Her co-workers had done the same thing, but after this second time around, they hesitated on giving Ellen the cash. They all agreed that something didn't feel right, and therefore it was probably wise to hang on to the money and wait to see how the ongoing investigation was going to play out. Her fellow tenants would ultimately abandon the idea of raising money for her altogether after a short conversation with Ellen, who was ecstatic that she found a much cheaper funeral home. Stephen's funeral was only going to cost $1,500. She had that giddiness that broke people tend to show when they find a particularly killer bargain. But considering the fact that she was talking about her child's burial, it left the women who planned the charity fund feeling kind of gross inside. Plus, if her kid's funeral was such a steal to arrange, she probably wouldn't be needing the extra money after all. They didn't even know how right they were. Ellen had several life insurance policies just waiting to be cashed in now that Stephen had passed. And man, did that money burn a hole in her purse real quick. As soon as she got her hands on the cash, or was scheduled to receive a sizable chunk of it anyway, she went and bought herself a brand new car. It was the kind of purchase that the police would find more than a little odd once they learned about it. 
She purchased the car, a metallic blue Chevy Lumina, two weeks after homicide detectives had officially started the investigation, which made buying a $14,000 vehicle a pretty stupid move, especially for a woman with a lot of financial struggles. Eventually, they were going to want to know where she got that kind of money in such a short amount of time and for what reason. That was going to be a little hard to explain. A few weeks before she fell in love with her new car as it sat in the showroom at the local dealer, the medical examiner had finally received the last of Stephen's test results. Just as he suspected, every test came back totally normal, which made his suffocation theory even stronger. Dr. Graham notified the detectives of his conclusion. Murder seemed like the most likely answer, but he wouldn't know for sure until the investigation played out. It was time for the homicide department to get to the bottom of what had happened to the Boehm boys. Ellen met Sergeant Burgoon for the first time on December 8th. She seemed cooperative and was willing to talk about the day Stephen died at length, minus a couple of key facts here and there, of course. She withheld the fact that she took Stephen to his little brother's grave the day she kept him home sick, and she definitely didn't mention her multiple calls to the office from a phone booth before and after that stop. But she detailed which vaccines he'd gotten over the weekend and her stop by the drugstore for some children's Tylenol. The detective made note of everything, mostly details about her different errands with her son that day. She also made a point to mention that she hadn't been able to find her ex-husband in order to give him the news that Stephen had died, which was a flat-out lie, not just an omission. The story Paul used to leave her became useful, though. He did suffer from medical problems after his time in Vietnam. Even if his claims of going to Texas to get checked out for his past Agent Orange exposure were bogus. Now, Ellen seemed to think his health issues would give her a bit of plausible deniability in the detective's eyes. The implication she was aiming for was that the boys may have inherited something from their father, and since Paul never contributed a dime to support them or even attend their funerals, Ellen said she suspected that a mystery disease might be the only thing Paul Boehm ever gave his sons. When Sergeant Burgoon asked if she had any life insurance policies on the kids, she was surprisingly open on how many she had and how much they were worth. By the time the interview was over, the detective had a lot to think about. He wasn't yet aware of the things Ellen wasn't saying. He still didn't know the hairdryer incident had even happened, but the wheels of fate were already in motion, and it wouldn't take long to realize that the transparent, cooperative woman he spoke to was actually a pathological liar with a heart of stone and the motherly instincts of a garbage can. After Stephen's death, Deanne pretty much stopped talking to Ellen altogether. Before they'd gotten off the phone on that horrible night, Ellen assured her best friend that she would call back as soon as she had the details of the funeral ironed out. When Deanne called her back after a week of no news, Ellen told her that she'd left a message with the arrangement details on the answering machine in Deanne's office. When she went to double-check at work, she discovered that no such message had been left. It was just another one of Ellen's free-flowing nuggets of bullshit. It was unsurprising and disgusting in equal measures, and from that moment forward, Deanne cut off almost all contact. So when Ellen called her up in mid-December, it probably seemed a little weird. But she was claiming that the medical examiner had finally determined that both boys died from electrical rhythms of the heart, even though nothing had been listed on the death certificates yet. Deanne listened politely, unaware of the investigation that continued to unfold. Although some witnesses could corroborate Ellen's accounts, Todd Andrews, the medical student who lived down the hall, for instance, 
Others had some concerns they wanted to share with the detective. Karen Grimes, the manager of the apartment building, was one of them. As it turned out, she was one of the last people to see Stephen alive on the morning of September 25th. Karen ran into them in the hallway as they were heading up to their apartment. The boy looked a little tired, and Ellen explained that he hadn't been feeling well that day. After a short conversation, mother and son went on their way, and Karen didn't think too much of the exchange. But when she saw the ambulance pull in less than an hour later, she had the sinking feeling that they were there for the little boy. Unfortunately, she ended up being right. Karen Grimes had another useful tidbit to share. She was the first to mention Sarah's near-fatal accident with the hairdryer. At the time, the only other person who was aware of the incident in relation to the investigation was the social worker who spoke to the girl a few months back. But Sarah's account of what happened didn't give her much to go on at the time, so the report had been written and shelved. Until now. Apparently, Karen learned of the hairdryer incident from a building custodian, who overheard Ellen's mother discussing it with another tenant. Nobody thought much of it at first. Kids have all kinds of freak accidents growing up, and Ellen's story made perfect sense. But her behavior was far outside the realm of what you'd expect for a mother that saw the kinds of sorrows she had. When David died, Karen was taken aback by Ellen's outward lack of emotion. It was like she just didn't care at all, as if the toddler never existed to begin with. Then, with Stephen, Karen offered to go pick up Ellen's mother herself so Ellen could ride with her son in the ambulance. But the woman flat out refused, saying that she'd rather bring her mother to the hospital on her own. Much like the paramedics tending to the boy, Karen was shocked by her coldness. But before anyone had time to fully process the situation, Ellen was headed to her car and Stephen was being loaded into the ambulance. The only appropriate response in the moment was to just let it go, but it was a moment that Karen couldn't forget. After the initial round of interviews, Sergeant Burgoon began the process of verifying certain stories he'd been told. The thing about the hairdryer was at the top of the list. Unfortunately, when he spoke to someone over at Cardinal Glennon, they were unable to find any record of Sarah being treated there before her little brother's death. The phone call wasn't a total waste, however. The person he talked to was able to give him the name of the person that treated Stephen when he came into the emergency room. Dr. Tony Scalzo couldn't offer any information about Sarah's case, but he knew a lot about Stephen's. The doctor said that Ellen and her daughter were actually scheduled for an extensive round of cardiac tests to check if the boys could have had a condition known as prolonged QT syndrome. It tended to occur more often in males and could sometimes cause sudden death. Dr. Scalzo said they were also attempting to get access to Paul Boehm's records in order to see if he experienced any relevant issues with his heart. When he was finished discussing the case with the doctor, Sergeant Burgoon turned his attention to Ellen's life insurance policies. Through those calls, he learned that Ellen had purchased about $97,000 worth of coverage on each child through four different policies, and within a month of that, one of her children almost died, and the other actually did die. Yeah, that's not suspicious at all. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Shortly after learning the test showed no indication of prolonged QT syndrome, the detective also found out about yet another policy Ellen had taken out. This one was through Gerber, and it brought her payday up to an even hundred grand for each kid. The company was apparently reluctant to grant a policy for Stephen due to a mild seizure he suffered during a hypoglycemic episode in the past. By the time they finally decided to insure the boy, he was already dead. At the police station, a team was assembled from detectives in five different departments, each with specific skills that would prove invaluable in a case like this. To this specialized task force, it seemed clear that Ellen had indeed killed her children. What wasn't clear was if her decision to murder them was the result of some kind of personality disturbance, or if it was simply rooted in greed. But after finding out that she had skipped out on paying the funeral home in charge of David's burial, they started leaning a little closer to greed. According to the second funeral director, Ellen said she was dissatisfied with the service of the first one and therefore refused to pay the bill. But this obviously gave the second funeral home cause for concern, and so they had required her to sign over the single insurance claim they knew about, a policy she'd been given through her employer. Ellen apparently neglected to mention all the additional coverage she had recently purchased. The funeral director also echoed a sentiment that detectives were starting to hear a lot. Given the circumstances, Ellen acted extremely weird. There was a certain coldness that multiple people had picked up on at various points in the timeline. On their own, they were just weird, awkward little one-offs. But when you put together all these different stories of this woman's behavior, the picture it painted for the police was morbid, terrifying, and more than a little sad. When the investigation finally worked its way to Deanne, she wasn't the least bit shocked. She had already been informed that she'd likely be brought in to answer some questions, and she was fully prepared to help in any way she could. Ironically, she'd also received a call from Ellen on the same day, and she was happy to tell the investigator what her former friend had to say. First, they talked about the brand new car Ellen bought a few weeks before Christmas. When Deanne asked how she managed to afford the monthly cost of her new set of wheels, Ellen deflected and said she'd saved up for the down payment. Another odd choice for a flat-broke woman, but she explained that she planned on selling it herself. Then, Ellen casually asked if Deanne happened to know anybody that worked in homicide. Deanne replied that she did, and thankfully, Ellen changed the subject. But later that same day, she called Deanne for a second time. She told her that the medical examiner still didn't know what had happened to the boys, and she was worried that the same thing could still happen to her daughter. Of course, she'd called Deanne about two weeks before this, claiming that her sons were found to have died from an undiagnosed heart condition. But Deanne didn't bother mentioning it. She was too busy worrying about Sarah. Given what they now knew, the police decided to bring the mother and daughter down to the station for a talk. While Sarah was led away to be interviewed by Detective Rochelle Jones, who worked in the sex crimes unit, Ellen was taken to a separate room in the homicide division. During the interview with Ellen, the detectives got the same stories they'd already heard. To be fair, her version of the events leading up to Stephen's death were corroborated by multiple witnesses, but she continued to leave out crucial information, like her frantic phone calls to the office. When the detectives steered the conversation toward the topics of insurance policies, Ellen was once again surprisingly open. To an extent. See, the detectives already knew that one of the insurance companies had withheld the proceeds of the $30,000 claim she had on Stephen, pending the outcome of the investigation. 
The insurance agent they'd spoken to told them the decision to hold off on cutting the check was based on a number of things. The absence of a cause of death, the recent death of another child in the family, and the timing of Stephen's death in relation to the time that the policy was initiated. But two other companies paid outright on schedule, and Ellen was already over $50,000 richer. The police were also aware that she had written a letter to the bankruptcy court requesting a payoff amount to settle her outstanding debt, which she said would be paid out of a $50,000 settlement she'd received after the death of her child. The letter was interesting for another reason, though. In addition to proving that she was anticipating that large sum of money was coming her way, Ellen couldn't resist the urge to lie. She claimed to still owe somewhere around $16,000 in hospital and funeral bills, even though she really only owed a little under $4,000 for David's funeral. And thanks to the boy's health insurance, she owed a grand total of $525 for both their hospital stays. The detectives asked about her policies on David first. Ellen said that she had two policies on him, one for $5,000 given to her through work, and a second through John Hancock for $10,000. Both companies had paid on time. When asked what she did with the money, she merely said she spent it on various things. Then they wanted to know why she took out so much insurance on her other children afterward, but she didn't really have a great answer for why she'd applied for over $50,000 in life insurance on a healthy four-year-old. Ellen claimed that the insurance agent convinced her the fifty grand policy was a better value than the one for thirty grand. Unsurprisingly, that would later turn out to be a lie. But on top of that policy, she had another $30,000 policy on both kids, and another $12,000 through United of Omaha. And she couldn't give a satisfactory answer for why she decided to open all of these accounts, especially considering the premiums for each one cost a little under $20 a month. That was a pretty big investment for a single mother that had so much financial trouble she was no longer allowed to pay her rent with a personal check. When it became clear their current line of questioning wasn't going to pan out any further, the investigators shifted gears and brought up Sarah's experience with the hairdryer. Again, Ellen gave the same story she'd been telling since the incident happened. Stephen threw the hairdryer in the tub, Sarah started screaming, and Mama Bear rushed in to save the day. Then she took her daughter to Children's Hospital, even though it was further than Cardinal Glennon, which explained why Sergeant Burgoon couldn't find any record of the incident at the hospital where Stephen was taken. On a separate floor of the police station, Sarah was telling a similar story, with a few subtle differences. The little girl said that she tucked her brother into bed and read him a bedtime story until he fell asleep. Afterward, her mother helped her into the tub and left her to play with her dolls. At some point, while Sarah was washing her face with her eyes closed, she heard a splash and frantically tried to rinse the soap out of her eyes before the electricity overcame her. Miraculously, she was able to grab the dryer, shut it off, and throw it to the side. By the time she was pulling herself out of the tub, her mother had heard her screams and was now in the bathroom with her, asking what had happened. Sarah didn't really know any more than Ellen seemed to. After getting the girl dressed, Ellen loaded the kids into the car and headed to the hospital. Sarah told the detective that, on their way there, her mother told her to say that Stephen was the one to drop the hair dryer into her bathwater. Ellen said she had talked with him and he had been trying to help her dry her doll's hair when he accidentally dropped it. Further attempting to obfuscate reality, Ellen told Sarah that she had been the one to pull the plug out of the wall, 
even though the little girl vividly recalled turning the dryer off herself. But Sarah didn't offer these details with the intention of implicating Ellen at all. Like most children with parents in any kind of serious trouble, she felt an intense need to protect her mother, even if she had suffered at her hands. That's just how kids tend to work, and the detective was fully aware of that. Still, they had pretty surprising moments with the little girl a few days later. At the time, the detectives were dropping by Ellen's apartment to speak with her mother, Catherine Booker. They were surprised to find Sarah there as well, apparently homesick from a stomach ache. Wanting to speak with her grandmother privately, the officers escorted the little girl off to her room. On the way there, she stopped and informed them that her mother told her the police were saying she murdered her brothers. Sarah insisted this wasn't the case, and she wanted everyone down at the station to know it. Meanwhile, in the living room, Catherine had a somewhat different perspective of how her daughter was coping with her immeasurable losses. According to her, Ellen had taken things hard and still slept with her son's favorite toys every night. When she was asked about the insurance policies, she expressed knowledge of them but hadn't known they existed until a few weeks prior to this interview. They pressed her on the fact that it seemed like an awful large amount of money, and Catherine readily agreed. However, she was adamant in denying that her daughter would have taken the policies out with the intention of cashing in on the lives of her own children. Despite the people who loved her most doing what they could to defend her innocence, the facts were clearly pointing in a different direction. Not long after their discussion with Catherine, the detectives came across yet another policy, the one from Gerber. Oddly enough, Ellen never mentioned this one, but she had mailed in an application for $3,000 in coverage on Stephen, Sarah, and herself. They couldn't help but note that this last policy brought the total coverage for each child to $100,000. A pretty satisfying number, especially to the greedy. The application was dated August 29, 1989. At first, the company had hesitated to issue Stephen's policy based on his past hypoglycemia, but ultimately decided to issue the policy on October 18th. Apparently, they didn't realize the boy was already dead. Ellen agreed to submit to a polygraph test on January 4, 1990. Unfortunately, the results were inconclusive. Refusing to be discouraged, they brought Ellen into a back room for another round of questions. This time, they intended to dig a little deeper into her finances. They started by asking how she managed to pay for David's hospital expenses, and she told them that his medical insurance covered most of the $30,000 bill. When it was all said and done, she only owed about $500. In Stephen's case, the insurance had covered all but $20 or so. The detectives now knew that she had lied to the bankruptcy court with her claim of being $16,000 in debt, but they wanted to keep her talking. It seemed like it didn't take much to get her tipping over herself, which was a good thing given the circumstances. Next, they asked about the $10,000 policy she had on David. In the initial interview, Ellen said the company paid as expected and that she spent the money on different things. Now, she claimed that John Hancock never gave her a dime, and she was pissed about it. The company told her the premium payments had lapsed even though she was 100% sure they hadn't, and therefore the money couldn't be collected. After letting her wind herself up for a while, they pointed out the fact that Ellen told them otherwise the day before. How did the story go from, I got the money and spent it, to, I never got the money and now I'm mad at the insurance company in a matter of hours? And what was the reason for the sudden switch in the story? It was yet another thing that Ellen Boehm just couldn't seem to explain. 
On January 8th, the investigators got in touch with Carolyn Fenton, the custodian of Riverbend Apartments. They'd gotten her name from the building manager, Karen Grimes. According to Karen, Carolyn overheard a conversation between Ellen's mother and Ellen's neighbor, Pauline Sumakowski. The women often babysat during the day and would strike up a polite conversation besides the pool or playground while the kids played together. On this particular occasion, the custodian heard Pauline ask how Sarah had been doing after the accident. Catherine reacted with utter shock, and there was no faking the confusion on her face. Although she would later claim that Ellen did tell her about the ordeal with the hairdryer the morning after it happened, the custodian heard her say otherwise. She also heard Pauline be the one to break the news. And on top of that, the conversation where Catherine discovered her granddaughter's accident had taken place on the evening afterward, not in the morning, and that difference in timing was key. Given how the other pieces of information she'd given them ended up panning out, the police were inclined to believe Carolyn Fenton over Catherine Booker. Ellen's mother also insisted that her daughter hadn't had any involvement with any men, and she was adamant in asserting that it was definitely the kind of thing Ellen would have brought up. Her daughter had always been honest with her, she said, except that she actually hadn't been honest at all, and the detectives were about to uncover even more proof of that. It all started with a man named Robert Brown Jr., known as Bobby to his friends. He was employed at the apartment building as a janitor for about three years. During that time, he spent the night at Ellen's place on a few occasions. They were definitely more than friends, but their relationship was strictly casual. They might have had sex a couple of times, but Ellen made sure he knew all about the other so-called men in her life. Paul Ellering, a manager of a wrestling duo that called themselves the Road Warriors, came up regularly. She said he called her often, and they got together whenever they happened to be in the same town. And given how far she was willing to travel to wrestling events, they were in the same town a lot. Then there was the manager at the pizza shop she worked at part-time to make ends meet, who she said always made sure to deliver her pizza personally like it was some sexy porno fantasy. She'd also mentioned a mystery man with a blue sob. She said he had a phone in his car. For the 90s, that was some pretty sophisticated equipment. Ellen claimed that this mystery guy nobody had ever seen actually lived with her for the first six months of 1989, but conveniently he always came home late at night and left early in the morning. Bobby told the detectives that Ellen even called him from the car phone once, or that was what Ellen told him anyway. Knowing her, she was probably standing by the gas station near her apartment even as she claimed to be on the road, effortlessly feeding him lies while she twisted the payphone cord around her finger. By the time of that year, she told Bobby that her fling with the unnamed stranger had ended. Things just ended up not working out, she said. But that was fine, because to hear her tell it, she was the most desired woman in professional wrestling. Bobby went on to say that he'd last seen Ellen a few months prior to being contacted as part of the investigation. He'd dropped by the apartment for a visit, as he still did every now and then. There wasn't much of a romantic spark between the two, but he said they remained good friends and Ellen was usually pretty open with him. That's what her stories about all those other men seemed to suggest to Bobby in any case. In addition to her flings, Ellen confided in him about something she never spoke of to anyone else. As a child, her father had attempted to sexually abuse her. During his last visit, Ellen gave him the news of Stephen's death, but she seemed oddly okay. When she asked him to stay the night, however, he turned her down. 
Their sexual relationship didn't really hold much interest for him, even though Ellen still pursued it when she had the chance. But Bobby had already decided that he liked her more as a friend, and her behavior towards her dead sons was just a tad too uncomfortable to be around for extended periods of time. After wrapping up their talk with Bobby, the detectives were left with a lot of fact-checking. They were already aware of Ellen's tendency to lie directly to them, but nothing really could have prepared them for the sheer number of stories that would eventually turn out to be total fabrications. It was clear that Ellen wanted to appear more popular than she actually was. Not just that, but she wanted to seem desirable, especially by high-profile men in the wrestling industry. None of these stories would end up having the slightest shred of truth to them. Realistically, these men were merely peripherally aware of her existence, despite her over-the-top attempts to get noticed. Take the manager of the pizza shop, for instance. Beyond her employment there, he told the police that he didn't really know Ellen at all. She was just a lady with kids that came in, did her job, and clocked out. Their relationship was kept strictly professional, in other words. Deanne herself ended up confirming that most of these tales were completely untrue. In fact, throughout the course of a friendship that lasted over many, many years, Deanne said she'd never seen Ellen with a man, not one time. That didn't stop her from trying to pick one up, though. Deanne described all of their adventures in the better days. They loved following the wrestlers on the road when they both had the time and money. There was nothing better than stocking a cooler with snacks, throwing it in the back of the car, and taking off with her best friend for a few days to indulge in a common interest. But during these trips, Ellen always had another mission underneath it all, one that involved seeing which wrestler she could get to show her some new moves between the sheets. The answer, as it turned out, was always zero. Ellen struck out every single time, despite taking certain steps she thought might afford her the best chance to get a look at what was underneath all that spandex and macho bravado. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Deanne told them about the letters Ellen gave her to read, the ones meant to entice her latest crushes in the wrestling world. The women often tried to stay in the same hotel as their favorite wrestlers in hope of catching a glimpse or maybe getting something signed in the hallway. But unlike Ellen, Deanne wasn't delusional enough to think these dudes were going to sneak back to their hotel room for some penthouse forum-style fun. She was there more out of appreciation for the wrestlers as athletes and performers than any desire to know them in the biblical sense. Sure, she sent a letter or two herself, thanking the wrestlers for putting on a great show, but Ellen's letters and gifts were different. In spite of what her friend wanted people to believe, Deanne shared a hotel room with her on every trip, and she knew that there was no way she was tiptoeing around for a quickie at the Marriott with anyone, let alone the multiple men she claimed to be involved with. For one thing, the wrestlers often had a floor of the hotel to themselves, one that required a special pass. On the occasion where Ellen did manage to score a room next to Ted DiBiase, the man she'd obsessed over the most, he always changed rooms to distance himself. Ellen went so far as to present the million-dollar man with a birthday gift once. Deanne remembered it being a velour shirt she found at a clearance rack at Kmart. 
He was ugly as hell, and she wrapped it up to give him when they ran into each other in the hotel. Deanne wasn't too sure what to make of the gift, considering the fact that she was still married to Paul at the time, and aside from that, it really was an egregious article of clothing. Deanne tried to rationalize it by thinking maybe her friend meant it as some sort of joke, because she couldn't imagine this well-paid performer having much use for it otherwise. The detectives asked how the wrestlers responded to all these advances, and Deanne explained that, for a lot of them, the pen pal thing was one of the job's perks. They liked hearing from the fans and knowing which of the letter writers was hanging out in the crowd. It made them put on a better show, because they liked knowing they were playing to an audience that was eating it up. They definitely began to recognize Ellen and Deanne standing by the side of the ring, and they appreciated the attention. To an extent. Ellen tended to go a bit overboard, and you could only turn somebody down so many times before coming to the conclusion that ignoring them altogether was the best course of action. According to Deanne, that was the conclusion a man named Paul Ellering eventually came to. Her friend was particularly fixated on the manager for the Road Warriors. She'd been trying to hook up with him for years. Letters, cards, the whole works in her creepy arsenal. But none of it was successful. After multiple rejections, Ellen still kept trying, which ultimately led to him refusing more than a glance in her general direction. Ellen had all kinds of stories about her wild times and sexual exploits with this particular man, and Deanne had heard most of them. They were hard to believe to begin with, but her doubt would soon be confirmed by Paul Ellering himself during his session with the detectives. They wanted to follow up on something else Ellen had mentioned to Deanne, some issues with the dealership that used to maintain her old car. There, they talked to two men with similar stories of Ellen's romantic persistence. One of the men had clearly grown tired of the woman's offer for drinks. She was always pretty nice, but her constant advances were grating on his nerves. Ellen had told him that she had also dated another man that worked at the dealership named Gregory Allen. Around the time she kept hounding these two men for a date, they were both also getting obscene phone calls at all hours of the night from a woman referring to herself as Fuzzy Bunny. Everyone at the dealership assumed that this was either Ellen or one of her friends, because the woman on the other line always mentioned her. Gregory Allen, as it turned out, had also refused her offers to meet up. That was starting to become par for the course in this investigation, but he had an incident to bring up to them that was just too bizarre to be anything other than the truth. According to Gregory, Ellen brought her car in to have some work done, and he was busy with the task when he noticed something sitting on the floorboard. It was a bottle labeled Butt Grease, an appropriate title considering he was a mechanic, but completely inappropriate when you stop to think about the fact that this random customer intentionally left a bottle of anal lubricant for him to find after being repeatedly rejected. Even after learning of all these fabrications Ellen seemed to spin out of thin air, the worst was yet to come. A few days later, Sergeant Burgoon got in touch with a good friend, who happened to legally represent Ellen's place of employment. The lawyer had been contacted by Elaine Herman and her co-worker, both of whom served as Ellen's supervisors. Elaine had been the one on the other end of Ellen's panicked phone calls on the morning of Stephen's death, and after coming to the hospital to support her, it felt too weird to keep it all to herself. She ended up calling the company attorney to tell him about it, and now the investigator had a piece of the puzzle that he hadn't even realized that he was missing. 
Regardless of why Ellen thought it would be a good idea to call her place of employment and tell her supervisor that her child was on the way to the hospital well before the moment when he actually stopped breathing, the reason why she didn't tell the detective seemed pretty clear. Those payphone stops suggested that the murder was planned far in advance. In a case that had so little evidence to go off of, this would be a vital component in the future trial proceedings. Equally important would be the life insurance policies and the fact that the medical examiner had submitted the boy's medical records for a peer review, only for all seven experts to come back with the exact same conclusion. Ellen Boehm did, in fact, murder her sons. But in the year and a half that went by, between the time Stephen died and the time that the doctors officially ruled his death a homicide due to mechanical asphyxiation, Ellen continued to make some pretty ballsy decisions, especially considering the fact that she had detectives sniffing around all the time. She talked about the Paula Sims case a lot, for one thing, although she was smart enough to never mention it to Deanne, who knew her too well and would probably get suspicious. Her co-workers were a different story. She talked about the case often at work and remained convinced that Paula had murdered her daughters for the insurance money. Naturally, that led the investigators to wonder if maybe the Sims case inspired Ellen's actions somehow, but they never really get confirmation one way or another. At Sergeant Burgoon's convincing, Deanna agreed to go out to dinner with her old friend, but with everything that had happened, she was more than a little reluctant to reunite with her. However, if she didn't keep up appearances with her, there was a chance that Ellen could wise up to the extent of the case against her and haul ass out of town. Nobody wanted that. Realizing that her baby's bare graves looked suspicious, Ellen made a show of purchasing their headstones and paying for regular deliveries of balloons and flowers. It was too little too late, of course, but now that Ellen realized so many people were looking into her, she was frantically trying to cover her tracks. At one point around this time, Ellen called her up out of the blue to come clean and admit that she was a liar. Not that the confession really meant much, because Deanne already knew. During another phone call, Ellen informed Deanne that she'd hired an attorney. Her friend assumed she made this move in preparation for the criminal charges that were inevitably coming her way. Instead, Ellen hired the lawyer to help her get her hands on the remaining $44,000 that the insurance companies held back after Stephen died. If all that wasn't enough, there was the time Ellen blurted out that there were 101 ways to kill a child without leaving evidence. She said she read about it in a book from the library. Why was she reading that book in the first place? Then, right before the start of February, Ellen told Deanne that she was fighting to have two policies for herself and her daughter reinstated. With all the suspicion swirling around her and her every move being scrutinized, it was hard to imagine a universe in which having any further business with life insurance companies under these circumstances would be considered normal. As she felt the detectives closing in on her, she made a desperate attempt to take the heat off of herself by throwing her own mother under the judicial bus. You know, the mother that babysat for free at a moment's notice and always seemed willing to lend a helping hand in whatever way she was capable. Yeah, that one. Ellen called another friend in a fit of hysterics, claiming she was certain her mother had done something to the boys. Catherine was a horrible person, according to her daughter, and once lost her job as a nursing aide for being violent towards a patient. Ellen said she was willing to bet that their grandmother was responsible, because it was the kind of thing that seemed like it was in her nature. 
The friend ended up calling the police department to ask them to look into Catherine, fully unaware of just how much evidence actually pointed to Ellen herself. By February 21st, the FBI had seen enough to want to get involved. Having assisted Thomas Harris while writing The Silence of the Lambs, Agent James Wright was something of a household name. Besides that, he'd worked with Sergeant Burgoon before, and the men shared a mutual respect that made their approach to Ellen Boehm incredibly effective. In Agent Wright's professional opinion, Ellen struck him as the kind of person with a desire for the finer things in life, but an equally strong desire to cut corners in order to acquire them. She saw the dollar signs in front of her and never stopped to consider the consequences beyond topping up her empty bank account. And once that money came in, it was gone just as quickly. Never mind the fact she still had a daughter that might want to pursue higher education one day. No, Mama needed a new car and season tickets to the wrestling match so she could find more guys to throw herself at and then lie once they sidestepped her frequent advances. And now that they had more than enough to show a clear pattern of intent, it was time to bring her in. At Agent Wright's suggestion, they staged the interview room to make it seem like someone was working the case round the clock. In reality, the detectives pretty much had everything wrapped up for a while. All they were waiting for was the results of the medical review, which wouldn't be ready for about a year and a half. In the meantime, they planned their arrest of Ellen very carefully, hoping to overwhelm her with a mountain of evidence, some relevant, some not, but that wasn't the point. On September 12, 1991, Ellen was charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of both of her sons, in addition to a single count of first-degree assault for her attempt on Sarah's life. The police got the green light they were looking for, but they wanted to hold off for just a while longer. The next day was Friday the 13th, and it felt like the perfect day to bring this cold-blooded killer to justice. That's just what the detectives did. When Ellen got off work that evening, law enforcement was already poised for the ambush. Sergeant Burgoon pulled her over as she was headed home, and after he approached her vehicle, she blurted out something he hadn't expected to hear. Quote, I knew you were going to get me. Yeah, the police knew they were going to get you too, Ellen. That doesn't make you special. They took her back to the station and led her to a room with a sign on the door reading, Boehm Task Force. In reality, she wasn't quite that important to the St. Louis Police Department. It was all part of the plan to psych her out. So were the empty cups scattered on the desks and the piles of cigarette butts in the ashtray. Somebody had actually rummaged in the trash to get that stuff, while somebody else printed her financial records on posters and placed them in the room. It was all a ruse and one that would pay off quite nicely. Although she continued to maintain her innocence concerning Sarah's near-death experience in the tub, Ellen was finally ready to come clean about what happened to her sons. She started out by talking about Stephen and telling the same story that already heard a hundred times. When she was finished, the room full of detectives was silent, letting the pressure build. Then, one of the detectives slipped an arm around her and very gently told her that there was no point in lying. They already knew that she'd killed her sons, the detective said. They just needed to know why. When they asked if the insurance policies had anything to do with it, Ellen nodded her head. That same night, at around 10 p.m., Ellen agreed to make a videotaped statement. In the 40-minute interview, she gave an entire new version of what happened leading up to the deaths of her children. In David's case, she was tired and frustrated after slaving at the stove to get Thanksgiving dinner on the table. Even though she reportedly bought a pre-cooked meal and had told her friend that all she had to do was heat it up in the oven. 
After taking the kids out to see the Christmas displays going up all over town, she came home and put them to bed, but little David didn't want to go to sleep. She let him stay up and watch TV for a while, but at some point or another, her frustrations took over. While David was absorbed in the TV show, Ellen took a cushion off the couch and firmly held it down on his face. She referred to David as the fighter. She said he put up way more of a fight than Stephen would a few months later, but the toddler went still rather quickly. By Ellen's own count, she held the cushion over his face for about a minute or so, and by the time she ran out of the room, there was likely no saving him already. When asked why she made those bizarre phone calls about heading to the hospital and taking Stephen to Taco Bell instead, she claimed to have no more insight into the matter than the police did. The most she could really say was that she wanted to spend time with her son, and she lied to make sure she could. But she'd already been planning to spend the day with him anyway, since he was still getting over his vaccinations and seemed under the weather. Why take things to that degree? Ellen told them that she didn't know. It was an impulsive kind of action, something she'd already done before it even occurred to her to consider the ramifications. When they got home, Stephen went to the couch to watch Sesame Street, as his mother had already described. But when she looked in 15 minutes later and saw him there half asleep, she smothered the four-year-old with a cushion from the same couch that she'd used to kill his brother. The recording process ended without a single tear from Ellen on camera. There was something so grotesque about hearing a mother describe smothering her kids in the same voice she used to describe the small talk she made with her friend over the phone less than half an hour later. Ultimately, Ellen Boehm would accept a deal in order to avoid the death penalty. After entering her guilty plea, her charges were dropped to a single count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. She was eventually sentenced to two life terms in prison with no possibility of parole. She remains incarcerated at Missouri's Chillicote Correctional Facility to this day. A short while after her arrest, Catherine asked a family friend for help cleaning out Ellen's now vacant apartment. The friend obliged, knowing that the elderly woman was in poor health. As she was cleaning the bathroom, something caught her attention. Hidden away in a small space behind the toilet was a small bottle of Scope mouthwash. When she picked it up, she noticed that it looked off. It didn't have the right color for mouthwash, nor the right consistency. When she twisted open the cap, she realized that the bottle of scope actually contained antifreeze. The family friend couldn't help but be reminded of a case that was making the news around the time Stephen died. Something about a woman who poisoned her five-month-old with antifreeze. Was Helen still getting ideas from other child killers? Because if that was the reason she was staring down at this suspicious little bottle, she couldn't help but feel glad that Sarah was finally safe. See, that's the tricky thing. When you start seeing your children as a way to make money, even if it literally costs them their entire lives, that kind of thought process can do a lot of damage, and not just to the siblings left to grieve. It also has a way of making you a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. 
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.